You know, it is a complicated enough agenda for Christians, for Adventist Christians, to gather and do our business like this on Sunday. When we have shared ideas and experiences and values and opinions, when we are sort of coalesced around a lot of similar things, that's complicated enough. When you move that conversation into the public square this week in our nation, when the nation really gathers to do its business, the business of governing and how we'll be governed and, and by whom we'll be governed, how much more complicated when we move the conversation out into the public square into the life of this country in the United States, that Adventist Christians are to be involved in the public square is not a question. That's well documented in our history as a church from almost the very beginning, writing letters to the President of the United States. If you've never seen those letters, they're in the Heritage Center. That Adventist Christians would be involved in public conversation is a given. How we do that is our challenge. How is it that we engage in the public square? People are telling us that this election season is probably the most significant of our lifetime for the majority of us. I'm going to guess that some of you who are older and quite a bit older, you may have already lived through some really challenging and interesting times in this country. But civic leaders and historians and religious educators and journalists and scholars, many, many people are saying that what an unusual and interesting time in America's history, our election and politics conversation. It is a good time for Christians to pause again and ask how is it we engage as citizens as we think about our, our responsibility on Tuesday. Let's read again the words from Jesus recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this morning we'll just read from Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. As Jesus has been followed by a group of people who are, are trying to catch him, um, trying to trip him up. Mark 12 verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by people because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Therefore, here's what they really want to talk about, therefore, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is on this coin? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus asked them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. All three gospels record the very same response. They were amazed. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It's a puzzling little answer that comes back from Jesus. He actually avoids the question. In the days of Jesus, when the system of family and politics and economics is all embedded together and, and the religious experience sort of governs and glues it all, into one unified way of living, in that kind of time and place, so different from what we know here in America, it's a little difficult to understand this conversation even. Caesar's government, Jerusalem's religion, they're held together in a way our religion and our state are not held together today. We live in a time, especially Adventist Christians live in a time where we value the right that matters of church and state are separate 
That means you live in an America which guarantees you your, your right to your own religious experience, that no one will force their religious experience upon you. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. It's not probably a comment about the separation of church and state. Later in the Bible, this text will be, be echoed in, an, in another way when Paul and Pauline communities will start to say, you should live under the authority of the governor or the ruler. You should pay taxes. And I'm sorry, friends, your Bible does say that. We should pay taxes. Again and again, it says that. It by the way, never gets into a tax structure or how much taxes or who should pay what, but it does say we should pay taxes. As the Christian church just birthed and grown and grows, the text is used for, for us to understand we really have to cooperate and live within the structures in our world. And the, the older the Christian church gets, they realize we better, we better cooperate or we could lose our lives here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. With that answer, Jesus really refuses to tell people what to do, and I think that frustrates them. Oh, Jesus, you're full of integrity. We know you're not swayed by people's opinions. We know you only listen to the truth, and if you've ever, ever tried to bribe a teacher, that's what's happening in those phrases. Tell us what we should do, because we know according to the Jewish law, we don't, we don't pay homage to Caesar, we pay homage to the one Yahweh God, but we also know living in the Roman Empire, if we don't pay our taxes, we'll be arrested for insurrection. Tell us what to do, Jesus. When they produce the coin that Jesus asks for, he then tells them to read the inscription on the coin, where, where impressed, they're imprinted on that coin is the picture of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And that is the claim that makes all of the difference. It isn't about the money. It's about the claim imprinted on the money. It's Caesar now, but it can be any other ruler, ruler before or after as time moves on. There will always be a ruler. Another superpower will come along and mint a coin and put their image on the coin and claim to have the power not just in the territory, but power over people's lives. This coin announces that Caesar calls the shots. And when Jesus gives that coin back, I believe he's asking, I don't, what do you think? Does Caesar call the shots? Is Caesar your ruler? Is that the image that you bear? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I think that's the easier part. Give to God what is God's. Well, what is God's in this passage? What is God's in the New Testament? What is God's in the Bible? If you were here a few weeks ago in the Genesis conversation, Pastor Dustin unpacked the Genesis 1 passage where humans are created in the image of God and then they're asked to go out in the world and reflect, bear the image of the good creator wherever they go. They're asked to carry that imprint with them. Carry the imprint of the creator. You're created by God, claimed by God. You're now charged by God to take that image into the world. And if you remember, Israel had trouble with that. That's why it's in the commandments. Don't make another image. I am the Lord your God. I have claim on your life. No other image you should be carrying. There are two kingdoms operating, Jesus announces in the passage. There is the kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom of the world, and then there is the kingdom of God, the imprint that humans, that God gives humans, and those who, in particular who want to respond to God and be faithful to God, they carry an imprint of a different kind of kingdom. Two kingdoms. 
to clashing kingdoms most of the time. The kingdom that the world creates. You know about it. I was juror number 00113-3596 this week, and I know because that's how many times I called the phone number to check in, hoping I could get out. You know, I went on Monday and spent five and a half hours. I was in the Superior Court of Fontana. How long since you all served on the jury duty? Been, have you been this year? Let me see your hand. Have you been this year? Oh, you are my friends. It was a small case, a little misdemeanor in the city of Fontana, the Superior Court. They expected the trial would probably only take two hours. But here we were over five hours trying to seat a jury. And finally, my name was called very late in the day. It's after 5.30 now. The, court, the judge decided to hold court over because she was sure we were almost there. I was to be juror number 13, the alternate, and uh, got up there, and I, I was the only person out of the whole room that the attorneys didn't ask any questions of, and I was dismissed just like that. I took it rather personal, I must confess. <laughs> I kind of left the courtroom feeling like a, just a big reject. As soon as I said clergy, that's like, bah, she's out. You have any problem telling the truth? No, she's out. I mean, I just like, what, what's wrong with me? Couple hours, a couple hours earlier in the day, however, there was a man called. They'd kicked a lot of people off this, this potential jury. He walked up, sat down. The judge said to the man, by now you are very aware what this case is about. You've heard the details. Do you believe you would have any trouble serving on this jury and rendering a fair verdict? And the guy said, yes. And the judge said, because? And he said, because I believe city codes are made to be broken. And that's about what happened in the courtroom. That's about what happened in the courtroom. And so the judge continued to question him, and, and everybody kind of had an idea he was up to something. She continued to question him and, and act as if he was a viable live option for the jury. They gave him a few chances to sort of tone it down. And then the attorneys came to him, taking their turns with him. He, he really got his time. Do you really believe city codes are made to be broken, sir? Well, no, not most of them. And, he, and finally, he massaged the answer enough, but eventually he, the, the attorney for the defendant uh, thanked him and moved to dismiss him from the court. On his way back now, out, out of the courtroom where the rest of us are seated, we were 50 people a few hours ago, we're down to 11. He whispers to us on his way past us, and that, my friends, is how you get out of this garbage. <laughs> the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of protocol. There are a lot of people who understand that world, and we grow weary of that world and its rhetoric, and we grow less inspired by our leaders the longer America lives on, more cynical. We are more cynical now than ever. We don't believe, it's hard for us to believe good things can come in the world out there that humans have created. And it's right about this time in the election process, I don't know, you must be feeling the way I'm feeling, that I just would like it to be over now. Are you? I've had to limit my consumption the last two weeks because it's really getting to me. And it, I, I find myself being, uh, I'm, my opinions are becoming stronger and I'm turning a little uglier and I get a little grouchier and I don't like 
the person that I become. In fact, my spouse has held me accountable a couple of times. He walks in and sees I'm consuming the news, and he says, I thought you were going to cut back. <laughs> I, I am. This is cutting back. <laughs> the kingdom, the world creates. How is it that we do our parts as citizens at this time, just three days away from a very significant election in our country, knowing the difference between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of God, two kingdoms that often seem to clash? There is one thing I'm very convinced about, and I've become very, uh, I, I just very much like this phrase I read a couple of weeks ago, the kingdom of God will not be on the ballot. Christian activist a couple of weeks ago said this, and you may have heard him on airwaves. When you walk into the polling place on Tuesday, the kingdom of God will not be on the ballot. How significant that is for us as people of faith to understand. Every choice we'll have available to us on Tuesday, they'll all be imperfect. None of them will be specifically ordained by God, handpicked, chosen, put there. We ought to remember that. Because this is the kingdom of humans, the kingdom of Caesar. Kingdom of God's not on the ballot. So as a person of faith, it helps me, and I'm going to share with you a couple of ways. It helps me to be in this conversation. It helps me to remember that people of strong faith will mark different boxes on Tuesday. You understand that the gospel values we all have are flushed out and expressed in different ways. People of strong faith don't all check the same box. That's a misjudgment. If we believe all Christians vote a certain way, that's not what happens when we walk into the bowling, polling booth. In fact, it actually violates the freedom that's inherent in the gospel itself. When God saves us, God gives us this freedom to use our minds and our skill set and to share with one another and to make choices. So people of faith will choose differently on Tuesday. Whatever is on the ballot, I should consider. It's interesting talking to Pastor Dustin in the last few weeks and trying to understand what the youth are thinking about this election and how the youth talk about it. It's interesting to listen to the conversations in the world, how Christians have sort of gotten an idea that there's just a handful of agendas we really care about, and all Christians vote a certain way on those agendas. But whatever made it on the ballot, whatever is there on Tuesday, as a responsible citizen of God's kingdom, I need to thoughtfully consider. If it's on the ballot, I need to consider it. As a people of faith, I also would like to be aware that it is easy for me and it is easy for you to fall into the trap of fear and hate. It is just as easy for us as the rest of the world, ugly methods that are alive in the election season, and the further, the closer we get to the election, the uglier it seems to get. You all notice that too? Until you look around and you see what is civil about our civilization. Sometimes we feel that way. The, the longer this goes on, the uglier it can get. My mother phoned me early in the week. She lives in a retirement uh, center with other seniors. They sit out and put puzzles together in the evening, and they have been talking politics for a few months now. She phoned Monday night on her little cell phone. I can tell she's away from the group, but I hear all the voices, and she's whispering to me, have you changed your mind who you're going to vote for? <laughs> and I said, no, have you? 
And she said, no, but it's getting really scary. She said, you should hear the things they're talking about around here. I can't believe what they're saying. Do you believe the things that they're saying? See, we don't, I don't even know which candidate she's talking about right now, but the point is still valid. The things they're saying, she says to me, I don't know what I should believe. Sunday morning on my way to the constituency session, 7.30 Sunday morning, my cell phone rang. It was forwarded here from the church office. I answered because I thought it might have to do with the session. It was one of our church neighbors. Someone who lives around the perimeter of the church who did not identify herself, but at 7.30 on Sunday morning, she wanted to know if the propaganda on her front porch was from the Adventist church. She said, I'm sure that it's from a church, and I thought I would start with yours. This is, this is exactly what she said to me. And I responded to her, I'm so glad to tell you that that is not from my church. I really hope it wasn't, by the way. <laughs> How do I know? You're a lot of people to keep track of. So I decided to go with the upside of it. I'm, I'm really glad to tell you it's not from my church. She said, oh, thank you. Hung up the phone. It gets ugly out there. Ugly. So the lawn sign, my oldest daughter decided to put a lawn sign in our front yard to express her freedom of opinion. And we're moving along fine for the last couple of weeks until uh, Thursday morning. Someone stole our lawn sign. And I notice all the lawn signs of that particular opinion are completely gone from Grand Terrace, our sweet little 25th best city to live in in the United States. I'm sure you've heard by now of this gentleman in North Carolina. When the lawn sign was getting stole from his property, he didn't like that. He happens to be an electrical engineer and he hooked up the wire to the pet fence. <laughs> and he put a camera in his tree to capture whatever was going to happen. And in the middle of the afternoon, when, when the little thief thought no one was home, he zapped a nine-year-old boy <laughs> whose parents came back a few minutes later and said, what on earth are you doing? The child was going to remove one sign and had the other one wrapped up under his arm. He was going to replace the lawn sign. See, that's the kingdom of the world. It gets ugly out there and hostile the way people behave. For me, it's even more discouraging when people of faith, Christians, sometimes Adventists, also behave this way. I just want you to think about that this morning. The polarizing language of fear. Behind every act of hate, there are words of hate that precede it, aren't there? Ideas of hate and words of hate that precede it. The farther we get into this election, the polarizing language of fear, the ugly way people are categorized, hate. And we sometimes find Christians are participating in this. I have been persuaded by author Bill Bishop the last few weeks. I've been looking at this book called The Big Sort. His idea is that while we live in a country more diverse today than ever in America from coast to coast, more diverse than ever, but in the last three decades, it's much more likely that you live in a zip code with people who are just like you 
who share your values and your lifestyle, your ideas, your political preferences. And so much so that if you drove a couple of zip codes away, the people could be so different, we don't even know how to relate to each other anymore. Their ideas, and that the last 30 to 40 years, we have self-selected out. Not just to be with people with the same skin color, but people with the same political ideas. It's a very interesting idea. Social psychologists have been studying group behavior for more than 100 years, but one of the things they're telling us now today that they're learning is that when we self-select out like this, when we end up grouping with people like us, like breeds like, like-minded people gather together, what tends to happen is we become more strong in our opinions. And we can become a little extreme in our opinions. When we are with a broader group of people where there are diverse opinions, the conversation tends to be a little more moderate, a little more open, a little less hostile. But when we cluster together, that's the language of this, this author, when we cluster, it's more likely for things to turn ugly. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Now, this isn't a speech that we should be less passionate about our convictions. It's just simply an observation of one of the changes that not only has happened in America, but that also happens inside of Christianity and probably even inside of Adventist Christianity. And it's telling to me when I read political commentary coming from Christians and even Adventist Christians, it's telling to me when that language gets ugly and hostile and polarizing, an us and a them. Last Friday night when we sat in the kitchen, one of the girls read to me some political opinions from a website. When we got, when it was all said and done, it was some of the ugliest political commentary I've heard all year. More name-calling than I've heard in one piece, which ended with God Bless America. By the way, if you want to know a violation of taking the Lord's name in vain... It ended with God bless America, but then when I heard the name, I, these are Adventist young adults in Adventist schools. Our kids raised by us. Talking with more hate, as much hate as I've heard anywhere in the kingdom of the world. It just makes me want to pause this morning with you, church, and just take a collective breath <laughs> together as Christians, as Adventists, as people who live in similar zip codes, and ask ourselves, are we polarized to the point where we've become ugly? It helps me to re read from Titus 3. It helps me very much to be reminded of these words. Titus 3, verse 1. This is writing to the community gathered there. Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all people. At one time, we too, all of us who call ourselves Christians, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. At one time, we were like that. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, everything changed. 
God saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of his rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. We once were like that, but we ought to be reminded that we no longer are like that because we have the kingdom of God imprint on us. So if I am out in the world, participating in my world, and, and you hear hate coming out of my voice, out of my life, out of something I write, you better call me on it. I'm giving you permission. You better call me on it. You have a responsibility back to me to say, excuse me, Chris, you have the imprint, the image of the kingdom of God on you, but you're sounding like the world right now. It helps me also to be reminded of Jesus' words in John 18, you are not of this world. Jesus said about his disciples, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, if the text had stopped right there when they were being questioned, and this is Jesus with the disciples before Pilate when he was taken into custody, my kingdom is not of this world. Had the text stopped right there, Jesus ushered the disciples off into a protected community like the Essenes who lived in a remote, removed experience and environment polarized all on their own. Had Jesus done that with the disciples, we'd have a different conversation today. The text goes on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, we would fight they would prevent my arrest but because it's not of this world we're going to participate in this world a different way we're going to take that image of God that's been given to us from creation we'll, we'll participate in this world in a different way not of this world not of this world you see that bumper sticker all the time that means we move around in this world in a different way and if you want to know what that looks like well beyond how you cast your vote on Tuesday. Just watch Jesus again. Jesus doesn't need a megaphone. He doesn't need a rally. He doesn't need an argument. He doesn't need a, a ballot measure. Every time Jesus stops to heal someone, he's making a political statement. Every time he stops to teach someone or feed someone, he's making a statement about people in the world and how we ought to, as kingdom of God people, move about our world. If we want to know how to be citizens, we have to go back and watch Jesus again. Here is a comment I read just yesterday. I believe this is a teenager, an Adventist Christian, reflecting on all, on all the hate that he or she is seeing from Adventist conversation about the elections. And this student says... Wow, I'm getting the Adventist emails like many of you. I'm really having a hard time believing that anyone in my own faith wrote this stuff. I just keep telling myself it's not the church. It's just people. I still can't believe it, though. Perhaps the most important thing that will happen this week while we all need to vote on Tuesday, perhaps the most important thing that happens this week begins on Wednesday. When people like you and I, who understand the imprint of the kingdom of God, walk back out into the world and give this young Adventist Christian and the rest of the world who is watching, give them a hope that the kingdom of God really could be seen in us. Maybe the most important thing that happens this week happens on Wednesday.
when we go back into the arena of the world for God. God bless you on Tuesday as you make your choices, church. God bless you on Wednesday as we live them. Amen. So be dismissed, church, into the kingdom of this world, which often seems wrong and so often seems strong. But be dismissed knowing you have the imprint of the kingdom of God, the image of your good creator. Be dismissed into the world who's looking for just such good news. Amen.